0: Dang, you like caught yourself. Just kidding. (laughs) Well, I mean, if you listen to this the day it drops, you'll be saying those words in a few hours. We are
1: going into a new decade, people. A new
0: decade. Not even just a new year. Amanda and I did something
1: different over this holiday. Last week, what dropped was our interview our podcast episode where we were featured on the lucky few and we have another treat for you today we were on another podcast walking with Freya, and you may remember the host and frick she was on our pod on not ours. too long ago mm-hmm. and we had a
0: great mm-hmm. conversation that kind of went down a rabbit hole
1: right but we were originally on her yes podcast she um listened to our podcast and that was I think one of the earlier ones that we were, like, guests. Like, we've been think guests so on a couple, yeah. but, like... That I mean, was a really fun one. Yeah, that was a was, lot of fun, it, and the pressure was off of us. Um, but anyway, you heard from the episode that we had with her on, because we wanted to continue the conversation mm-hmm. with her, that, yeah, we went down that rabbit hole, and then we asked if she would send us a copy of her book, and she totally oh did! Oh, my gosh. Her
0: poem, so we've got it right here. And it was, so, like... One Mother's Revolution. Um, it was which very, is just awesome. Yeah. If you have a chance, take a look. I think it's available on her website. I think that's what she said. But it's just
1: kind. She and was, sent us oh, each a copy. Yeah, it was, was great. It. She says,
0: This collection is one woman's attempt to make sense of the world through poetry. Okay. And she says, Let's shift this conversation. So, so we
1: hope. Yeah, this is us on her podcast. So it was our lawyer hat, similar to the lucky few. I guess we're experts in that area. I mean, but- if you're not tired of listening
0: to us this week, every week, which obviously you're not because you keep tuning in. Yeah, I know. We've I mean, Maybe you come shifted, for the guests. Well, that's true, too. We've kind of shifted <laughs> the
1: model a bit. But uh, we kind of wanted to get back into some of the stuff that people come to us for. And so that's why we wanted to drop, yeah. especially these last two episodes for the end of the
0: year. And we'd love to hear your guys' input as far as the format of yes. it just being us. Do you mm-hmm. miss our banter? Mm-hmm. You know, we're playing around with maybe some bonus pods where we can give mm-hmm. you some very quick just updates on the work events. that we're doing. We're, we're doing We're going, tour. going on shore. We're going on Woo! tour. 2020. Because of you guys. So
1: this is... Beyond our wildest dreams. I don't think, I think our goal was
0: just to be sure that we recorded ourselves. Our goal and put it was out just there. to like have a way that we could claim, like, that us talking to each other is legitimate. actual work. <laughs> and we thought if one of you guys listen and we're just so honored that you guys back. yeah you know and having people who listen to us ask to like mm-hmm. be on we've had so many amazing listeners who mm-hmm. want to be on mm-hmm. so you guys keep doing that and please give us feedback about next year 2020 mm-hmm. you know it's going to be a big year but we're really trying to make sure that we can continue this conversation and be a support for all of you so let us know Oh, and 2020 is going to be a good year, I think. Here we come. Enjoy.
2: Vicky and Amanda, thank you so much for coming on to this podcast. I've been listening to your podcast for the last few months now, and there's just, it's amazing what you're doing and how much information you're putting out and what a great resource it is for the community.
0: Well, thank you for having us. And we're so happy to hear that you've been listening and you've been benefiting from it. It's been such a crazy ride having people listen to the conversations that we normally have on a day-to-day basis.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, those are some pretty intense conversations you guys have (laughs) then.
1: Yeah, definitely. And we do it so much. That's why we just decided to record ourselves. And if it was just our moms listening, then it was just our moms (laughs) listening. But we're happy to hear that you've enjoyed it. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Good. How about we start with you each talking about how you got into studying law and into special education and disability rights.
1: Sure. This is Vicki. I'll go first. I went to law school thinking I was going to be the next Aaron Brockovich. So hopefully that's the right demographic because sometimes when I'm in law schools and I say that, they're just like, who? And I'm like, oh no, I'm <laughs> dating myself. But environmental law, I really thought uh, my dad was environmental law inspector at some of his previous companies. And so he just made sure the chemicals were balanced, blah, blah, blah. And so I thought, oh, I want to save the environment. That's easy. So once I got to law school, I was Able to get a fellowship with Orange County Coastkeeper, and so I thought, okay, this is it. And it was a wonderful fellowship. I'm so grateful for my time with OC Coastkeeper. But you know, I noticed it was a lot of paper pushing, writing comment letters, and things like that, which is great. But I was really missing that kind of people. Connection And Amanda and I went to the same law school and I was studying abroad in Spain, as was she. I was going to my third year. She was going into her second year and she was like, oh, you should take this class with me. It's a special education clinic. Like we, you know, I think you'll really like it. And I was like, okay, sure, whatever. So I really have Amanda to thank for bringing me into special education. We did not have the same class. They pulled me from the Los Angeles section of the clinic into the Orange County because I spoke so Spanish and they had no Spanish speakers. But I mean, it it ended up working out. We're obviously together now in our own firm with the nonprofit. But I'll let Amanda kind of tell how she got involved.
0: Yeah, so I uh, never thought I would go to law school. In fact, I fought it, even though I had family members telling me I should be an attorney because apparently as a kid, I argued a lot. (laughs) And it was just something that I just never wanted to do. And I, you know, in college, changed my major a lot. And you know, realized that I'd always worked with kids and I loved kids. I did summer camps, tutoring and babysitting and all of that. And I thought, oh, well, you know, I guess I should be a teacher. Like that's what I should do. And my aunt's a special education teacher in LA. And I thought, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And so I got a job working as a paraprofessional and aide in a charter school in the Valley of Los Angeles County. And it was one of those amazing one in a million charter schools that does full inclusion, right? Just everything working together. So I got the benefit of being able to see how amazing inclusion can be. And I worked with this little boy who's living with Down syndrome, who I just fell in love with. And I thought, okay, this is the right path. And as I neared having to enter my credential program, I realized how much red tape there are for teachers. And I talking to families telling me, you know, part of how we got here and part of how like we had to struggle, we had to go through the legal process, we had to get an attorney. And I guess this is why they said I should have gone to law school. I realized I would be one of the teachers that would get in trouble because I would speak up. And I just felt like at that point, this wasn't the path for me. And everything kind of clicked at once. And, you know, the universe kind of put me on this path. And I decided to apply to law school and that's where I met Vicki and, you know, so fortunate to have landed in, in, you know, the field that, you know, we love so much and we're so passionate about. I thought you were going to say, lucky that you met me. Well, obviously, <laughs> that goes without saying. <laughs> and nice. so we both went to separate special education firms. Hers did a little bit of other areas of law as well, right out of law school. And, you know, we'd get together all the time and realize that there was just more we could be doing. And We thought, you know, there's a different way we could do it. Not that anyone was doing it bad. It was just, we had these ideas. I think partially because we weren't parents ourselves at the time, it gave us kind of a different perspective of like, and we were young and hungry and we were like, let's, you know, we were very ambitious and I mean, still are, but had this idea of like, maybe we can do things differently. And so, you know, we started our nonprofit and our law firm and obviously led to the podcast. Mm
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I will say that when I started listening I just kept waiting for one of you to talk about, you know, a child that you had was in special education or something. I was waiting for some connection like that. So to hear, you know, when I realized that you guys had just gotten into it for your sense of humanity and for your you know, for their community, I just love that so much. So thank you. So thank you. let's go ahead and talk about your nonprofit and tell everybody what it is and what it is that you guys do with that.
1: Sure, so the Inclusive Education Project was this kind of brainchild of ours. When we started our law firm, we thought, oh, you know what? People just have this negative connotation of attorneys and we already don't look like attorneys. So we thought, well, let's do a nonprofit and you know, our presentations, our kind of awareness that we wanted to promote. And obviously what we talk about on the podcast a lot is just starting the conversation. We thought, you know what? People can digest a nonprofit. Who just so happened to have hired attorneys to do these presentations, right? So we kind of, you know, because people are like, "Well, why didn't you just do a nonprofit law firm?" And it, we just, we really wanted them to be kind of two separate things, intertwined but separate. And now. The way the nonprofit has evolved, not only just that component of awareness that we want parents to know that they have rights and that change really happens with a a group of people that understand their rights. The nonprofit has evolved with our, we've coordinated with several law schools in the Southern California area to provide free legal services. So then that just kind of naturally came about where we were doing two things. We were giving law school students the chance to case manage and talk to clients and go to IEP meetings and maybe even, you know, write a fact section of a complaint. And it also provided free services to low income families. I think, I mean,
0: yeah. So that's a big part of how we've kind of developed and evolved. And like with the podcast, you know, like we said earlier, it was literally something that we thought would never go anywhere. We just, you know, we were told by so many people, you got to do blogs and you got to do posts on social media and yada, yada, yada. And you know, it wasn't like we needed clients because there. we just, I mean, I think our staff told us we had 14 potential clients call us this week, but it was more about the fact that we wanted to get the word out more. We wanted to get families to really engage in this conversation, but not just families in this population, but families as a whole, the community to be able to be aware that not only is education something we should be focusing our time, but these kids are so amazing and we shouldn't be thinking about like the disability. We should be looking at, you know, their person first. And so, you know, the podcast kind of stemmed from like, we do presentations and we can't be, you know, we can only be in one place at a time. And it's really grown our desire to do more than just litigation. We want to do more than just help one kid at a time. We really want to try to change people's perceptions about disability and our children that are differently abled, and. Make sure that we can make a bigger impact than just you know the hundred clients a year we might be able to serve in Southern California.
2: hmm Yeah. Well, I think you're doing that. I mean, oh, thank
0: that, you. There's a,
2: every time I listen to an episode, I feel like I should be sitting there taking notes, but you could go back and listen. That's okay. what I figured. <laughs> so, can we talk about what inclusion is? and what it looks like, and even maybe go into how it differs from mainstreaming? Because I'm not sure that I'm totally clear on that. Sure.
0: So a lot of people think of inclusion as one-child centric, that we are taking this one child and we are putting them into an environment and we are making sure that they are included. But the way that we really should be looking at inclusion and where we see it works so much better is the idea that inclusion isn't just a space, it's not just what do we need to do for this one child, but it's what can we do to provide a culture and an environment for everybody, everybody in that room, because every child has unique needs, whether they have a diagnosis or a disability, there is something in their life that there's going to be something that's going to be different. And the idea that we can have a learning environment that can ebb and flow and be molded to work towards the needs of every kid. When you have an environment that is along those lines, it's easier to have a child maybe on an IEP to be in that room. Because the biggest, I think, hurdle that I always face when I'm dealing with trying to get a child to be fully included, meaning in the general education, having access to the gender curriculum to the maximum extent possible, is that if someone doesn't know how, or they think they don't know how, right? They think this child has a diagnosis of autism and I don't know much about autism. So I don't know what to do. Well, start with their child first and work from there. So that's kind of where we try to change the idea of, you know, inclusion isn't just, let's just go into this general education classroom. It's a lot more than that. And I think, and I, I was
1: listening to your episode. I think it was like a couple ago of denial and how you were talking about your oldest daughter was going on a camping trip and Frio was obviously coming along and just like your thought process and how at the end of it, you were just like, she just wanted to be included. Like if I would have just brought her bike or if I would have just done this, I think that speaks exactly to what Amanda and I are trying to, and what you're already doing is starting the conversation by sharing your journey and showing that, it's not just she's there and just deal with it, but like that sense of, I understand that, you know, she has unique needs and like, what is beyond understanding, right? Remember we were talking about like the different levels. There's like tolerance, right? It's just like, Mm -hmm. I'm tolerating you and your unique needs. And then there's like, acceptance but then like what's beyond it's that understanding and i think that that's what amanda was really speaking towards when we were talking about inclusion and then when you look at mainstreaming you know it should have an aspect of inclusion in the sense of okay if they are in a special day class, but they are really good at reading and we're going to mainstream them. So that means that they're getting the same kind of general instruction as all the other third graders. And then we take them out and then we individualize, you know, that could be a form of inclusion, but we're talking like broader, right? Yeah,
0: like I see mainstreaming as a term of art. Yeah. It's really a legal terminology that's been utilized in IEPs to talk about a specific set of time when a child is in a dead Mm -hmm. But inclusion is much more because when we talk about, you know, what is education's purpose? Education is meant to help our children become self-sufficient, independent members of society, contributing to society as much as they can, right? And so if we are saying that they're going to be in some environment while they're in school and we're going to, in that environment, prepare them for a world that doesn't Mm -hmm. separate them, Mm -hmm. it's not going to work. So the idea of inclusion is really part of that preparation for the real world. Yeah.
2: Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and I love the part of the conversation about, so I'm kind of new to thinking about all of this in this way. And, but just the realization that it's not just for our kids the benefits of inclusion, but, you know, to the benefit of everyone in the community and the compassion that people can learn and the empathy and learning how to interact with people with differing abilities and just adapting to a variety of people.
0: Absolutely. I mean, when when, you know, Vicky was talking about the tolerance to acceptance, to understanding, you know, that's something that it can be taught very young or be inherent if we place children in opportunities to learn that. So the school that I worked at was, you know, preschool through a fifth grade, and then they had a middle school and a high school. And a lot of the kids, they started in preschool there, and then they had their entire elementary school like in that school. And during that time, they didn't know anything different, Right there was, I think it was like 20% of the population was kids like on IEPs. And that's a pretty big number for not having any self-contained classes whatsoever. And when you have kids that grow up in that environment and they don't know anything different, you're not teaching them, oh, you're different. You're teaching them, oh, you're just my peer. And, you know, because we know that biases and intolerance and hate is all learned from environment and, you know, kids learn so much from us. My experience was so amazing because I didn't just see how it benefited the child I was working with, but the other students, I mean, the level of compassion and not just compassion in the sense of having empathy, but true love for the students, the same way that they cared for any other student in the class was amazing to see. And that didn't stem from a teacher saying you need to love this child because they're still a kid, right? It just came from them being in an environment that fostered a culture of everybody is the same, and we have differences, but we are all human, and you know that there's nothing that we should be looking at them like like they're so different. I think it's amazing to see environments like that, and so if we could just replicate that in all schools, I think we'd be <laughs> in a very different place.
2: Right. Well, so what are some of the obstacles to inclusion, you know, for schools? I mean, is it funding? Is it open-mindedness?
1: They're going to want to say it's funding and it shouldn't be, but I think it's the open-mindedness, right? I think it's a teacher already overwhelmed with a class of 30 and then you're sticking in three kids with autism that have behaviors and I don't have anyone other than my classroom aid. I think it's a lot to do with not understanding that kind of like how Amanda was talking about, like, you know, yes, we have special populations and people have learning differences, but even if you're neurotypical, you know, you may be able to learn things differently visually as opposed to auditorily, but it's not necessarily a special need, right? And I think that A lot of times teachers don't even understand the child's unique needs. And if they would just, we see this all the time with our kiddos with dyslexia. It's like, there's so many reading programs out there that would be beneficial for all children. It's not just for this child with dyslexia. Like why are we not using that program in the school? And it has to do with just, well, we've always done it this way. Yeah.
0: Well, and part of the reason they've always done it this way is because when we look at the history of not only special education being only around since the seventies, I mean, before then kids weren't even allowed to go to school. They were allowed to be rejected from school. They were allowed, a lot of them were being institutionalized, you know, so talking about only from the seventies to now, you know, it does take time for change to happen. It should happen a lot more, but, you know, when the IDEA came about, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act that governs special education in the United States, and school districts were given money to abide by this law, but they weren't really given training on how to. Teachers who are general education teachers aren't required to take specialized courses in special education above and beyond, like, an intro course, and so you have teachers that have not really been trained. But I think beyond that, like the perception that Vicki was saying is, is a big part too, because I'll be in IEP meetings where we'll be talking about trying to have a child fully included in a general education class, or at least like half the day maybe. And like the biggest question I get from a lot of teachers or the concern is, well, I don't really know how to modify, or I don't know how to do this and that. And when you really break it down, and a lot of the things that would really help this child are either common sense or they're strategies that anybody can implement. But it's the idea that the initial like block is I don't have any special training. I don't know what to do. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the willingness to think about, right. And the parent isn't the educator. So the parent usually can't come to the table and say, why don't you try these strategies in the classroom? They're not anything that's like special. They're just things that, you know, can be very easily utilized and it might actually help everybody in the class, right? You know, there's not enough of that conversation going on. And that's where, you know, usually we're the ones having to come in saying, maybe you should do X, Y, and Z. And a lot of times when I give specific examples of how you could modify like an assignment, let's say, teachers are always like, oh yeah, I can do that. Because (laughs) they can but they just, they automatically think, well, I don't have that credential. I don't have that training. And then it's not all of course, but I think that that's a big
2: roadblock Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, just kind of the label of needing an IEP or needing to modify, just they make it harder than what it needs to be. Right.
0: Because like a good teacher who uses best practices, who has a child in their class that's struggling, usually will try to think creatively on how they can support that child, right? Nine Mm -hmm. times out of 10. And a lot of times it works. And that's why sometimes we have kids that, slip through the cracks, because they'll have one teacher that realizes, okay, like, let's say they don't have an IEP yet, they're struggling in one area. So the teacher says, well, I can do this for them. And it works. But they go on to the next grade. And the next teacher isn't told that that's something that works for that child, because there's no IEP. And the next teacher doesn't think to do that, or maybe doesn't you know, have the resources to do that, or you know, they don't realize that that's needed, and so that's where the kid slips the cracks. They'll have a good year, one year, but then they'll go to another teacher, and they won't have the same supports. And you know, so I think that if we think about inclusion more along those lines of, let's say you had this child in your class, and you know, they're struggling with this. You know, what would you do? Because most teachers can come up with strategies because they do that on a daily basis. Their kids are not the same every year. I mean, we have Pinterest, we have YouTube, we have just so many
1: resources <laughs> that I know it seemed just so very, you know not extraordinary but they're super helpful like we don't have to reinvent the wheel but that's what we often see is that in, you know we have these great ideas that are research based but the implementation of them or you know if you're supposed to do this in this way but you don't really understand the reasoning why then you're not going to be able to implement it appropriately and that's what we've
0: I've seen a lot recently or i had an IEP the other day where my client was asking about trying to implement some type of like social like game in the classroom that they had heard about from another parent that another teacher was implementing that like helped all kids right and it was something where proposing that to this teacher it felt like the teacher I think I have to make sure my kids are prepared for state testing and I have to make sure that my kids are doing these district benchmark assessments or whatever it, the expectations are that are placed upon the teacher. And I don't have enough time to also do these other things. So sometimes it's a matter of that, that the administration is setting forth these guidelines about things that maybe aren't really in the benefit of the child because we're placing so much of an emphasis like on preparing for these standardized tests when we could mm-hmm. be using that time in better ways that maybe the teacher wants to, but just can't.
2: Right. Yeah, the standardized tests are what always get me. And I remember learning, I homeschooled my first daughter. And when I did send her to school, I didn't want her to take the standardized test. And this is not my daughter with special needs. I didn't want her to take the standardized test because I don't believe in them. But she ended up taking it anyway because they explained to me that they are allowed a certain amount of students not taking the test, but that they reserve those, tend to reserve those spots for kids that are struggling in areas and wouldn't do as well on the test is that true or am I misremembering that
1: I mean I've never before heard that in my no, life but okay <laughs> I don't think like that seems like a really like and this is what happens right is oftentimes you can have something in your life well that makes sense and of course last time you dealt with the district you were a kid right so why would they be lying to you and I'm not saying that they're lying to you I'm just saying that sometimes they get a different interpretation
0: well you remember like <laughs> you telephone as a kid yeah. right or maybe your kids play it now like right. <laughs> that I see happens all the time. Right. Is that an administrator or someone says something to someone and it goes down the rabbit hole. There's so many people in the district. And next thing you know, because this happens all the time. We're in IEP meetings and someone will say something and I'll go, that's not accurate. Like, it'll be like something <laughs> about what the losses and I'm like, that's not right. Where'd you hear that? And it's not like they're making it up. They literally were heard of, they were told that from someone. And so it could be an effect of like the game of telephone, right? It's in the communication or it could be that things change and we don't have school districts that are changing with the tides quick enough. I think sometimes.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, as far as the, I mean, that's one of the things I love about having your podcast as a resource now because I feel like so many of my questions have been answered or at least clarified a little bit more. And one of them was, which I actually wanted to clarify with you, so my daughter goes to a public charter school, and it's a Waldorf-inspired school. And I think Waldorf education for any kid is fantastic. I think also it's one of the reasons why Freya can be mainstreamed right now or i don't mm-hmm. know but i was listening to an episode the other day and i thought that you were explaining that all charter schools are public schools yeah okay and then they're private schools
1: and then yeah and then there are the non-public schools which are essentially private schools but they are accredited by the california department of education so that's why they receive federal funding so they cannot discriminate based on race color gender set you know and a mm-hmm. private school technically can <laughs>
0: like you know, yeah, just like yeah, like under certain laws, you know, private schools don't have to, you know, abide by them because they're not receiving funding if they're like funding statutes. So like the IDEA is a funding statute, which means that okay. school district, they get money and in return for that money, they have to abide by these laws. So if a school is not getting that money, they don't have to abide by it. But like the ADA, everybody has to abide by it. But charter schools are just like any other charter school, except for the fact that within the requirements of kind of how they operate, they have more flexibility and leeway. And so that's why we see, and of course there's bad charter schools too, but we see schools that often are really good for our differently abled kiddos. Like I'm sure where is at and the one I worked at, they were able to do things differently. They had the flexibility to do so. They weren't required to do everything cookie cutter, like their district says. And I think that, you know, Innovation and creativity is the key to successful education. And when you don't have that, I mean, it doesn't work for everybody, right? It creates that cookie cutter, one size fits all environment.
2: Right. So I kind of blended a couple of my questions together. now. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I was always a little unclear about like if she, you know, if kids that go to charter schools, if they have access to the same rights and to the same services, I was under the impression probably through like the telephone game that charter schools, it was like there was less responsibility on them to provide services, but it sounds like that's not true. No,
1: no. yeah. And I mean, what's one of the thing, like the philosophy behind the charter school is that it can be of the community. So like the parents are, you know, should be super involved. It's almost like they make up the board and, and make the decisions. Whereas with public schools, you know, they have the districts are under bigger umbrellas of people making decisions and things like that. But I think charter schools have almost gotten this kind of like, oh my gosh, it's like just as good as a private school because there are some in affluent areas with really progressive parents that have made it that. And so then you have those others that kind of skirt the line and they're like, oh yeah, we don't have to really follow the law or they kind of say things or interpret things in a different way. And then it just kind of, and it's all top down, right? So it's like, Who's leading it and how are they speaking about it? And we've found that with some with certain charter yeah, and, schools. And
0: do they have a philosophy that is like proven, right? So, like Waldorf schools that is proven to work for certain students and, and for many students. And the school that I worked at had its own modalities. And but there are some that you know people may be well meaning about the idea that you know, I think this is a good way to have a school. So I'm going to do it this way and it doesn't always work. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times that's where, you know, those can go wrong. But I mean, we would say the difference between a charter school and a public school with regards to what the school has to do is different. Mm -hmm. But the child, whether you go to a charter school or a non-charter public school, it's the same.
2: Okay. And can you explain for me a little bit like the LRE and the FAPE? Sure.
0: Yeah. So those are essentially legal terms of art. They are legal terminology that have a lot of meaning behind them. So it's not just the words that they mean in the Webster's Dictionary. So I'll go through. A faith is a free, appropriate public education. So it's easy to know. Public is you're at a public school. School, education, and free, right? We know that free is. That word appropriate is where basically our entire job lies. You know, we are constantly having to argue what is appropriate. And The IDEA lays out a foundation for what school districts are required to do in order for it to be an appropriate education. And then case law dives deeper and gives us clarifications because it is individualized. So our most recent Supreme Court case law dives into appropriate means that the child is making meaningful progress in light of their circumstances where they have challenging and ambitious goals that are driven from their unique needs in light of their circumstances. So I've given you a lot of words there that each of those, again, have their own legal meaning and it can go into it. But it's basically saying that whatever the child's unique needs are, we need to be individualizing their education to meet those needs.
2: Mm -hmm. So what does a parent need to know from that? Like when we go into these IEPs, I mean, because... LRE is a word, the least restrictive environment. That's a word that's fairly an acronym that's fairly new to me. And I'm just I wanna if you guys can clarify like what that means and like how much the parent is supposed to understand that to be able to advocate.
1: Yeah, so we think of it as a spectrum when we talk about placement. So all kids should start in the general education setting. That's where the neurotypical kids are, that's where some of our kiddos with unique needs are. And Sometimes, if a child with unique learning differences requires the smaller classroom, this is like the shtick that they give you, right? It's a smaller classroom. It's kids, just like your child, will go into a more restrictive environment of a special day class. And then special day classes can be broken into mild, moderate settings or moderate to severe settings. Our moderate to severe settings would be the more restrictive of the two. Mild moderate will typically have our kiddos with ADHD at times, which we would argue against. But anyway, that's another story. But We'll see some (laughs) kids with autism. You know, they're academically on par or close to grade level, uh, but maybe they need to take the information in smaller chunks. Mod severe classes, sometimes we'll see kiddos that have physical disabilities, intellectual disabilities. They need to have a completely modified several grade levels below grade level, right? Kind of instruction. If we move to the right one more and we get into even more restrictive setting we have the non-public school. So that's the private school we had just kind of talked about before. What makes it more restrictive is because it's just a school with children with special needs. There are no general education, neurotypical kiddos on that campus. So while you have a special day class, it's on a comprehensive campus. It has children, you know, there's opportunities to go to PE with gen ed kids and lunch and recess and all that. So it's not as restrictive, right? But with the non-public school, it it is restricted because only children with those special needs are there. And there's, you know, oftentimes therapists in each of the classrooms or whatever makes it, you know, such a great private school. And then once we go to the right one more, We find that sometimes children need a residential treatment center, and that's where the child lives at that space. You know, so we have oftentimes kiddos, maybe they're in high school, they have severe emotional issues that they're dealing with. Maybe there's been some suicidal attempts, things like that, where they just need to be not necessarily lockdown, but they need to be monitored 24-7 but while still gaining an education. And then there's even a more restrictive, it's, it's almost the same, but when the child is placed on home hospital for whatever reason, if they need to stay at home permanently or in a hospital placement, obviously you're not around any kids at that point. And that we oftentimes kind of interchange that with the RTC as being the most restrictive. So your child can fall on that line. And so they can still say, well, the special day class is the least restrictive environment for your child at this time. They're just saying he doesn't need to move to the more restrictive environment of a non-public school. And it's not appropriate to put him in the gen ed setting for whatever reason they come up with.
0: And to clarify for our listeners, when we're talking about restrictiveness, how restrictive a setting is, what we're talking about and what the law kind of outlines is that access to a general education curriculum and access to general education peers is kind of paramount we want that to be that access to be to the maximum extent possible so the more you have access to those two the less restrictive it is the less you have access the more restrictive it is so a general education class is presumably on a general education curriculum even if it's modified for that particular child you're getting exposure to the general education curriculum, you know, and so that's where, like, we fight for saying that, like, general education could be the least environment for any kid. It's really depending on, like, what that kid needs. So, you know, a child might be a couple grades below grade level in their reading comprehension, you know, but it doesn't mean that they necessarily need to be in a secluded classroom, because while a school district might tout that the special day class, All the kids there are at the same level, so we always get this. If they're in the general education class, they would be an island of one because they'd be the only one at that level. Well, at the end of the day, what we often see in implementation is the special day classes are broken down so much more that the exposure to the content is so different that it's not even close to the general education class, in the content even. So when a science class is going through studying how plants grow, maybe in an elementary school classroom, and the study of them needing photosynthesis and all of that, the special day class isn't going through that same process but broken down. Their science class is coming completely different. So we're not giving them the same access that we're giving these other kids. So in a general education class, that child could be given You know, instead of three paragraphs to read on the subject, maybe they're getting bullet points or maybe they're getting it read to them, right? Mm -hmm. So there's ways that we can make sure that they're getting access to that content and that curriculum. And then the peers is important too, because we know for social, emotional, even vocational, like following directions and behavior, you know, our kiddos learn so much from each other that taking them away and having them only exposed to children who have the same type of behaviors, they never learn from their peers the expected behaviors. There's one thing to tell a child what not to do, but if they see it, it's different. So when we're looking at the restrictiveness of classroom, we're usually looking at those two things, but it's as a maximum extent possible. So, you know, that's where the school districts can get away with saying, well, this child um, is not benefiting from this classroom because the work is so above their level that they're not able to gain from it because maybe it's not being modified the right way.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and that leads me to a question that my friend submitted. She lives up here in Humboldt County. We have a school that is just for kids in special education, and she was wondering because she said that in her experience that the local school districts just want to place children with moderate to severe special needs or kids with toilet related issues. Mm. They want to place them in this school, which is as you know as you pointed out doesn't offer any opportunities for inclusion and so she is wondering if you have any suggestions on how to kind of fight this and and urge the schools to be more inclusive or, or support them or if maybe there's even rights being violated, but just you know if you have any suggestions or resources
1: yeah to a certain extent it's an opinion that I don't want to deal with that kid. And so that's why they're like trying to segregate them. Right. Right. You know, they'll paint it as, well, there's more support in this classroom for those types needs. And you know, it sounds all good and well. And like I said, it, it starts from top down. So, you know, the point in which we have the podcast and we're trying to, you know, start the conversation and, and empower parents is so that In their local communities, they can try to make that change because at this point, it's just tolerance, right? Uh And we're just tolerating that your child has these toileting needs and here, this is where you're going to put them. And I think that, you know, the power from within to, you know, not necessarily you know, start with the PTA, but maybe, right, or speaking to the principal and talking about inclusion and talking about this is the only thing that my child requires. And here are all the strengths that my child can continue to work on if they are in an inclusive setting. And what you're doing is more so segregating that. Because obviously, we do have, to a certain extent, we're segregating some of these children. And it shouldn't be based on the fact that I don't want to do something. It should be based on the child's unique needs. So if they require more support academically, social, emotionally, vocationally, than you know, that it's difficult at that point. But most of the time, there's strengths there that right. can lead to the least restrictive
0: environment with some support. Yeah. And I mean, on an individual basis, the question that's often not asked at IEP meetings is what supports could be done in the gen ed class to support this child? It's the school district will say this special day class or this non-public um, is what's appropriate and here's why. But the question about the genetic class is left to the wayside. It's never even asked, especially with our initial IEP. It's never, well, can we do this? Like, what are the goals? Can these be implemented in the genetic environment? Maybe we need to pull out for, you know, 30 minutes here and there for speech and RSP, but, you know, we don't need to. Like, So I think a lot of times parents don't realize that, you know, you should be asking things like, you know, can we talk about the genetic environment? Can you explain to me how or why not? these supports can or cannot be provided in the genetic class because sometimes when you go down that rabbit hole people's minds can be changed because they realize oh well maybe we can right but on the systemic level when you're dealing with a school district that may even if you ask that question automatically be like no there's no way it can be provided you know if a lot of times the school board meetings are only attended by genetic parents It's very rare that you have children, uh, parents of of kids with special needs are on IEPs that attend school board meetings. And the school board is the top of the top of that district. They create policy. So, you know, if more families, if you could band together with other families that you feel are kids that should be included and aren't, if you all go to the school board, you can make more noise that way than just individually at your IEP meetings. Because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, your friend could say, oh, I'm going to go hire an attorney, and I'm going to ask for my kid to be in an inclusive environment. And they hire an attorney, and they get a settlement, and the settlement allows them to be in gen ed. But that helps for this one year for this one kid. It doesn't change the problem, right? So a lot of it, and this is kind of where we come from with this podcast of trying to educate more families, is that the minute that more families just like you become educated on what you guys can do, I mean, grassroots movement comes from grassroots of, you know, people, not attorneys you know, making this big stand, right? It comes from families. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, it does show a lot when a group of families come to school board meetings. it can be powerful. And if the school board doesn't listen, then that's when they need to be voted out. And that's when people need to start coming up with campaigns to get school board members elected into their school board that are going to listen to the community.
2: Okay. Yeah, I love that. That's a great suggestion. Go to the school board meetings. I never even thought about that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean thankfully I have had a great experience in the schools up here. They've been it's been interesting because my daughter none of the people at the school had knew about her disorder. And so I've been in this place of being able to educate them the bit that I know. We're kind of learning together. Mm -hmm. They're very receptive to everything I learned. I just went to a conference on uh, behavior management and I came back with this, you know, 10 pages of notes and they made copies for all the teachers that work with Freya. And so I'm very grateful for my situation. I was wondering, so the title of my podcast is Walking with Freya, A Journey Through Special Needs Parenting. Mm -hmm. So that phrase, special needs parenting, like in, if we're looking at this model or this vision of inclusion and how we frame things and how we word things, I'm interested to hear because I've been questioning that title lately and just interested in what.
1: It's funny that you say that because as I was listening to a couple of your episodes I thought that too. And I was like, oh wow, that's so great. It's easy and identifiable by like a parent that's like looking, you know, for a podcast to listen to, you know, you don't necessarily label, you know, it's not in the title her syndrome, but like a lot of the things that you talk about, a lot of parents can relate to, whether they have a child with special needs or not. I think right. one of the ones that I had listened to, I think it was from a while ago, but there was like, I think it was your birthday. And like, there was a treehouse incident and like right. just the way that you were talking to her. And I think you had said you had gone to like a training or something. And so you were like really taking it on. But that spoke to me in, because, you know, we speak to children all the time, but just that empathy component that like, that can be applicable to any person. And we have that struggle too, right? We really thought hard when we were thinking about the name of our nonprofit and it was kind of like dumb luck, but also like we had put some thought into it and it really has guided us. I like it to a certain extent. Like we have to say sometimes we're special education attorneys because if we say civil rights attorneys, then they go, well, what, in what area? What do you mean? And it's like (laughs) we deal with individuals and most civil rights attorneys or some deal on these bigger kind of class action based spots. And so it's hard because it identifies so then people can find you,
0: but then you also want to be inclusive. Yeah. I mean, I think language evolves. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, when we think about the terms that we used to use for the children in our community, even 10 years ago, five years ago, it has evolved. And, you know, Vicky said the term special education, you know, it's hard for me. Like I'm not a parent. So the perspective that I see in that is going to be different than either of you have, because you're both parents but I was listening to another podcast and they were were talking about a parenting aspect and, you know, with kids with Down syndrome. And, you know, one of the things I thought about is, you know, we always talk about how we want teachers to see our kid, these kiddos just as, as their students and um, all kids have special needs. Right. And so, you know, these, these, these moms were talking about, you know, parenting kind of in that, that same realm of, you know, parenting the default should be to parent, like you would parent your, any of your other child, just like, you know, one child may be great and love school and the other child may love sports, right? Or love dance. And, you know, all of our kids are so unique, whether they may need different supports in school or different therapies, they may need these things. But I don't think there's a wrong answer. I think that everyone has different opinions about language. Like, you know, we try to use like person first language, the same a child living with Down syndrome or living with autism versus like a Down's kid or an autistic kid, right? We try to put the person first, put the child first. So I think you know when we try to you know, frame our language of how we talk about what we do, not only as like a practice, but you know we're talking about how, you know, if we want to treat these kids and be fully included and fully act like, you know, they have a civil rights education, they have a right to education the same way that everyone else has a right to education. You know, I think the language we use, you know, I don't think we have to be so nitpicky and careful, but I think in how we develop you know, talking about these kids, if we want other people to change their perception, it might help. You know, we talk about the word. Vicky and I have talked about this before, I think on the podcast, but you know, we have friends and family that still use it on the cuff. And mm-hmm. most of the time when they say it in front of us, they immediately realize what they've done and they <laughs> say, Oh, I'm sorry, because they've been trained that like, we don't like that word. Right. But The fact that they even still say it and say, I'm sorry, we try to say like, it shouldn't even be in anyone's vocabulary, right? Because, and a lot of people are like, well, I didn't mean it that way. It's like, well, but that's the problem. Continuing to say it, even if you didn't mean it, you know, causes that stigma. So, you know, I think a lot of times we try to, you know, do that person first language as much as we can. But I mean, you still have to, if you're trying to get your demographic of your podcast to a certain demographic, then, you know, we have to use some kind of descriptors. I, right?
1: don't, I, mean, I don't even think that. I think it's just, you know, because we always say this all the time, like we can relate anything back to special education, but a lot of the topics that we try to broach are just things that we want to know more about. And that's the whole point, right? Is that spreading that awareness. So I think one, it's good for those parents that are looking for something, right? And and I what I love about podcasts are the fact that I could sit in my car. I can be in the bathroom. I can, you know, <laughs> yeah. nobody wants to know that I'm listening to it. Right. And mm-hmm. if those are my people and I feel like they're my friends because they're talking to me, then that's okay. It, it's another form for those parents that aren't ready to kind of step out of the shadows they've put themselves in and the way that you speak about both your children and I think your life and just finding it is amazing. And I think it, it helps a lot of people and, That's why we were very excited to be on the podcast because, you know, we are in all sense of the word counselors, not of just the law, but for a lot of these families, it's first person that really understands their child. We're not school psychologists. We're not licensed psychologists, but through our experiences and connecting with those people and trying to understand, I mean, there's 13 eligibility categories, but how many different diagnoses and special needs and chromosome deletions and physical ailment, like there's just it's endless and so that was also a selfish reason that we got the podcast because then we could get people on that could talk about their journeys or their expertise because we're not the experts so I think we need it for now but like Amanda said it's evolving and Amanda and I can talk all day and I know we're keeping you from your questions. we're keeping you from your questions (laughs) Um, but we dissect words all the time so we could kind of get off on a tangent
2: No, I love it. (laughs) Well, and, you know, when I started this podcast, it was so like meant to be a space just for parents kind of on this journey. And I've had so many parents of typically developing children say that they love the podcast and they love hearing the stories. And so that experience, and then also that moment, you know, Vicky, that episode you were talking about with like the tree house, my birthday yeah. and the empathy, you know, and like realizing like for me, that's when it really all came together. This, like the holistic purpose of inclusion, because mm-hmm. I was sitting there using empathy and I was like, wow, this is like, everybody wants this to right. be done yeah. to them and everybody should have right. skill. and
1: oh wait and it's frustrating that they weren't listening to you yeah like well, it's totally human, it's human yeah.
0: experiences what you share are human experiences just like any other family can share whether they have a child quote-unquote with special needs or not it's human experiences that everyone can kind of most people can relate to no matter if they're exactly in that circumstance or not
2: yeah, I think it's great when we get to hear all the different stories and experiences and it's just, it all just kind of opens up, you know, for more understanding and yeah, and all of it. So absolutely, I just want to say thank you so, so much. I absolutely love your podcast and let's make sure, how about you tell us how we can support you and find you and all of that stuff.
1: Yeah, I'll put a plug in for our Instagram. Our handle is the inclusive education project. And obviously that's our website.org and yeah, we all all tell like you- try to make
0: it all real easy. And then our podcast is the inclusive education project podcast. And we really try to create a community with that podcast. And so with that, we have a Facebook group that, you know, anyone is free to join. It is private technically. So there's a question you have to ask that's just ask. So, you know, how do you fit into this community? And it really can be anything. Like we have families that don't have kids with special needs that are in this community. We have educators. It's supposed to be a safe space to talk about these experiences and help each other because, you know, we're not alone and you're not alone. And I think oftentimes these families think that they are alone. So we've tried to create that community. And then, you know, all of our information is, you know, in our bio and our Instagram and on our website, they can contact us via email. Anyone that's in California, you can call us for consultations just for that purpose if people want to get more information about us. But mostly online is the best way, just like us, all us millennials all do everything online.
1: Our inclusive education project one is actually 899
2: Well, can we go on one more question? Yeah. A little more poetic. If you could wake up tomorrow morning and your mission in the world had been accomplished, what would that look like?
0: Wow. You know, what's crazy is that we just had like a team building event with our staff a couple weeks ago where that was kind of, you know, what we talked like for hours about because we very much, Vicki and I started with one idea and our business and, and our kind of our mission has evolved so much in the last five years that, you know, and we talked about that exact issue. Like what is that big global kind of mission? And you know, I think when it comes down to it, it, we see every child having an opportunity and access to good quality education. Yeah, every I think day. our jobs wouldn't
1: exist, right? Like at the end of the and we day, want that. I think <laughs> our job wouldn't exist, but um, I think the way that our culture and our society you know, and the empathy that needs to exist would be there. And we wouldn't have to label and segregate. I know that that's human nature. We like to put labels on things, but maybe the labels can be kinder. And that
0: empathy. Yeah, that understanding that the understanding, Yeah,
1: that's our world.